can score here. And he's... A half chance truly. Jürgen Klinsmann has got it. Hello and welcome to episode two of Retro Match. My name's Chris Darwin and I'm back with Pete Spencer. And today we're going to be going over another game in history, which uh, we're going to have a lot of fun reminiscing over. And I hope that you listeners will enjoy it as well. We're heading back to May 1987 and the FA Cup final between Tottenham Hotspur and Coventry City. So May 1987, Everton had just pipped Liverpool to the league title. Uh, we had Maggie Thatcher who had just called... Uh, called a general election Starship were number one in the charts with nothing's going to stop us now and Chaz and Dave were still stealing a living through the FA Cup final by releasing Hot Shot Tottenham but anyway we're going to talk about the uh, talk about the game in more detail and we are joined once again by Pete Spencer Pete how are you? Yeah very well thanks and I'm sure you're looking forward to this game uh, as much as I am. And, and stepping away from Liverpool, this was a, a rare moment in the 1980s where there was a big sort of final or or a league title or something going on and Liverpool weren't there. Well, exactly. And I think people did the build-up, thought it was going to be um, quite a one-sided game uh, and it certainly wasn't. Definitely wasn't. I think just a little bit of the research I was doing for the game, and most of the predictions were that Coventry were just lucky to be in the final anyway. Let let alone having a, a realistic chance of beating of beating Tottenham. But it was a, it was a it was a typical Tottenham team though, really, wasn't it? They'd finished third in the league. They'd been knocked out in the League Cup semi final, and uh, and they found themselves at Wembley for for this cup game. But they had some decent players. They did. I mean, it was um, it was a bit of a sort of a, a revolution. Uh, I guess. I mean, David Pleat was in, in charge and having sort of done his job of getting Luton into the top flight and he sort of put together a um, mainly a round hodl, I guess, but um, had got a sort of 4-5-1 formation, which back then was, um, I don't really remember teams employing that before. These days, everyone does. But um, So it was quite sort of revolutionary. And of course, he had, um, had a really great goal scorer, Clive Allen, up front and... Um, he was just fed by um, Hodge, Waddle, Hoddle, and uh, and Ardiles. So, um, and he had a cracking season, um, and it all sort of came together. And it was, yeah, I think at some point they were probably dreaming of the treble, um, but it didn't quite uh, didn't quite work out that way. If there are any Tottenham fans, even back then, dreaming of Tottenham being strong enough mentally to close out a uh, a treble, then then more for them, I think I would say, through a slightly slightly cynical sort of gaze. But uh, but no, Clive Allen was an absolute revelation that season, wasn't he? He was a, everyone knew he had talent because he had a a pretty big move briefly to to Arsenal. Was it for a million pounds as a teenager, which which didn't work out? But forty eight goals in a season in any era is is fantastic. Uh, especially when you're not playing for one of the the top sides of the time. So what was what was Clive Allen doing then that uh, that 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 meant he was getting so many goals, but also meant that he wasn't getting. Yeah, any I mean, I think team. well, yeah, that was a, that was a strange one. He had a couple of um, uh, appearances, but but uh, yeah, this is a sort of year after '86 uh, Mexico. So you got Lineker and Beardsley, uh, Mark Haitley still getting sort of one or two um, goes up front, and and then it seemed. Um, yeah, seemed like, but but when you look at Alan's career, he was a, he was a goal scorer wherever he went. It's just this particular season was was way better than than anything he'd uh, he'd had. And I think it was just a combination of of him on form, but 
he was they were laying on some fantastic chances for him and he just sort of uh, put them away but I mean he wasn't just a you know a three yard merchant that just tapped it home I mean he was uh, certainly somebody that that worked at it and, and you saw that even in the early days of sort of QPR and Crystal Palace the ability to create space um, and create a chance sort of out of uh, out of nothing he was certainly somebody that quite happily sort of fired one in from outside the uh, the area but it just seemed to click the whole the whole thing did um, and the whole team seemed to be on a on, on a roll it just um, just ran out of steam but no I don't really know I think he probably had the odd sort of chance with England but it um Either didn't score or just didn't perhaps get the uh, enough of a chance, which is just you know, odd. When then you look back at the amount of chances perhaps that Lineker got before his hat trick against Poland in '86, which he says changed his career. And if he hadn't have got that, he may never have played for England again. So I think it's on a sort of a it's one of those sort of fine lines, isn't it? That, that you either you either find that the manager loves you and and gives you all the chances, or it just never really works out. And of course, if, if we also went into the game knowing it was going to be Glenn Hoddle's last game. Um, I'm not sure if we actually knew his destination at this point, which turned out to be uh, alongside Arsene Wenger at Monaco. But it, it particularly riled Brian Clough, who was who was never short of a soundbite or two. Uh, and Clough, he was saying in the week leading up to the FA Cup final that there's no way that he would have picked Glenn Hoddle um, had, had he been manager, considering that his heart was probably, his head was going to be somewhere else for, for the entire game. Which I thought was a little bit harsh on, on Hoddle. And I certainly don't think that uh, having given and over a decade's worth of service to Tottenham at that point to then go and test himself in a, in another country was a was a particularly sort of um, Judas type uh, move from, uh, from from Glenn Hoddle. But they're going to suppose sort of typical Cluffy at that stage. He was uh, needing to find reasons to be on television or in the newspapers more and more by that point in his career. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you're probably right with uh, with that. And, and that season that Tottenham had, you'd probably argue that would it have been as good without Hoddle? Um, I don't know whether it uh, it would have been, but similarly, you wonder how much they relied on him. Um, you know, we'll go through the, the game. I didn't think he was. I thought he was actually sort of quite well marked during the game and had one of those. I mean, we've seen it for, for England, unfortunately, where. If he's not really sort of on on song, it just becomes sort of painful to, to watch at times. Um, but you're just always hoping for one bit of skill and genius, which he could always do. I think if you were Coventry, you'd rather he didn't get picked. Either. It wouldn't have matter whether he had a good game or not. You'd rather he didn't play against you. Um, so I think players like that carry some sort of threat just because they're there. But. Definitely, and uh, Coventry fans, don't panic. We are we are going to come on to the Coventry side and the background to that in a, in a moment. But there was also one brilliant thing in the build up, and literally in the build up to to the to the to the teams being unveiled at Wembley in in May 1987, and that was the Tottenham kits. Now now Tottenham were were wearing their new kits for next season, which was being sponsored by Holston. Um, but Pete, tell us tell us what what went wrong there. Well, it, it it emerged that um, well, I've, I've read sort of different different stories. I mean, there's one thing um, that's come out sort of afterwards that suggested that they sent the kit off to had it have it particularly embroidered, you know, with FA Cup Final '87 um, on the shirts. But um, when they came back, they sat in the sort of secretary's office for, for for weeks, and he didn't necessarily check it, and then it went to the uh, the ground. 
and some of the players found that they, um, when the embroidered uh, thing wasn't on all the sponsored shirts. There was another sort of suggestion that um, these were new shirts, so they hadn't worn them before. One or two players said, look, this doesn't feel right, you know, I'm not wearing it for this game, I'll wear sort of one that I'd normally uh, wear. Um, so you had, I think it was about five players that uh, with the sponsor's name on and and, uh, and the rest of them didn't, um, which I think has become a bit of a... Uh, it's the sort of thing that the internet's designed for, isn't it? Where people get a bit sort of nerdy about these types of, of things and check out who had a sponsor and who didn't. But um, I don't think the players were particularly fussed. There was a huge row about it afterwards. And, and unfortunately, I think the club secretary got sacked. I think the kit, kit man got demoted and, and all sorts of hell to pay, which seems a little bit un, unfair when you also read that Holston weren't particularly... Um, disappointed by it because you'd probably argue they got more um, notoriety from it than than if it hadn't happened, I guess. But I, I think I think Holston's viewpoint on it probably got stronger towards that as time went on a little bit when people were still talking about it, sort of, uh, sort of a little bit of time later. I believe, and again, this is only reports that at the time that some of the Holston executives stormed out of the executive box at Wembley because they were they were very disgusted with the fact that there had been such a, a monumental cock up. And there was talk at the time, and I'm guessing, uh, I'm only guessing here, guys, that probably before the FA Cup final, if you're an executive of a company that's sponsoring one of the two teams, there's probably a little bit of champagne, some nice food and all that sort of stuff going on. I mean, obviously, I've never been invited to that kind of thing myself, so I am merely guessing. But I would imagine that through a couple of glasses of champagne, there was even talk of the deal being pulled and Tottenham having not having a sponsor for the uh, for the 87-88 season. Now, of course, that didn't go on and happen. And I'm sure with hindsight, Holston are absolutely delighted that we're still talking about it now. What, tw- uh, thir- is it 31 years ago now? Is my is my matter? I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah, thirty one years ago now, Holston is still getting still getting mentioned for for that moment. But that was the uh, that that was it, it. Just looked strange, and of course the players wouldn't have cared less at all. But it, it did look strange, almost as strange as seeing Steve Hodge on the left wing wearing number four, um, Chris Waddle on the right wing wearing number nine, and the number seven Clive Allen playing up front on his own. So there were a few a few little sort of idiosyncrasies going on in the Tottenham team at that, at that time. But what about Coventry, Pete? us a little bit more about them and how they got there well they were um, i mean coventry is an interesting story anyway and I, I think if you're sort of probably i guess under the age of 25 you won't necessarily have sort of appreciated that they were a, a fixture of, of of the top flight uh for it was i worked out 34 years or something they had um they had in the top flight and, and a weird sort of a very sort of um always mid-table uh, i think they had a couple of positions where they finished top six, top seven, a uh, couple of seasons where they flirted with relegation, but the rest of it was just fairly sort of, you know, average, if you like, but managed to maintain their um, space for that uh, that time. But um, they put together a team. I don't think it's unfair to say they were a team of journeymen. I mean, they all came from, I think there's only Lloyd McGrath that was, was a local lad. The rest of them were all from sort of other clubs and, and had probably sort of made their name elsewhere. Um, and so, um, I mean, interesting, you know, Dave Bennett had played against Spurs in the 81 Cup final. Of course, Silver Regis was, had made his name at West Brom. Keith Houchin um, got notoriety for his goal against uh, Arsenal for York City, knocked them out of the cup. Um, so you had Nick Pickering who played in the League Cup final of a Sunderland in 85. So you had a lot of sort of players that have um, come from, uh, let's say, from other 
other clubs. Kilcline at the back for Notts County. Trevor Pete was at Leicester. So, um, but they 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 managed to. They, the other thing of get about them getting to the final, they played their first game, third round at home to Bolton. Every other game was away from home, um, and played twice. Including a one-nil win at Manchester United, which, to be fair, in '87 wasn't as big a, a shock as, uh, although it was still, you know, United. But I think they finished um, near the bottom that season. Um, anyway, so but Houchin got that, and he was—I mean, he, he hardly scored in the league, and yet in the in the cup, you couldn't uh, keep him away from the score sheet. Um, and their their semi-final against Leeds was was a terrific game, um, really exciting, um, and so. You'd say, well, actually, they've played some pretty good football. They perhaps deserve to um, to be there. And why not? Because for, was it, 100 and odd years of, of being uh, around, this was the first time they'd ever reached a, a final of anything. Um, so, you know, it's a fantastic story. And, you know, in a way, you're probably looking at it thinking, well, God, I hope they don't freeze or I hope they don't get sort of stuffed. Um, and uh, say so far from it, they, uh, they gave as good as they got. Yeah, definitely. And of course, there was, there was Cyril Regis as well, who was, all right, he was sort of at the tail or the back end of his career by this point, but still a phenomenal player. And uh, he was be, he was actually being linked with Johan Cruyff's Ajax at this point as well. Um, there was a, a random story where where Cruyff was still a big fan of the traditional English centre-forward and Van Basten most likely to be off to, to AC Milan from Ajax at that point. They, they were looking around for a, for a cost-effective, shall we say, a replacement and uh, not being put off by bringing Frank Stapleton back in about 1984 Cruyff was willing to have another go in the English market and uh, and take uh, take Cyril Regis over which would have been a, a fantastic turn of events oh, it would have been I mean Big Cyril was, was, was wherever he played uh, he was a fan's favourite and I think he played for nearly every Midlands club didn't he he just um, he, but and then every, one of those people that, that you love at your club and you don't mind if he leaves and goes somewhere else you still love him and then mm. there aren't that many down the years that have been able to have that sort of um, attraction usually when a player, especially who goes to a rival club, they they, they can't uh, can't stop um, telling him how much they don't they don't appreciate it. But yeah, he was a cracking um, player. Scored some great goals. Um, really sort of strong centre forward, and and uh, you know another one of those sort of. Uh, it was a breakthrough, really. Somebody like uh, like him coming through at West Brom, um, and then a great story going on to uh, Coventry as well. Indeed, indeed. So we, we head towards we got when the old Wembley Way now, and we're, we're heading towards the the, the kick off of the nineteen eighty seven FA Cup final. So we have got David Pleats in in the dugout for uh, for Tottenham, and we've gone John Sillett and uh, George Curtis in the dugout for uh, for Coventry City. And I kind of say the dugout, but I don't know if you noticed this, Pete, when watching this back. They were sitting together, which I found really, really strange. You had both teams, uh, sort of management teams, on the same bench at Wembley, and I, I, I never remembered that until I, until I watched it back. Oh, okay, yeah, no, that was that was always a, um, yeah, always one of the things that you sort of noticed because you know, okay, we, we, you still didn't really have too much sort of jumping up and down like you do these days, but um, yes, you'll quite often sort of see a picture. Um, and it's uh, quite away from the uh, from the edge of the pitch, and uh, and yeah, it almost looks like a row of seats where there's one half one team and one the other, and there doesn't seem to be a gap between them. But um, and surely, you know, they must have been able to overhear each other or what was being said. But I guess they didn't worry so much about that those those days. But yeah. 
It was it was quite bizarre. It's probably worth sort of uh, bringing a bit of the personal sort of side into this. Certainly from my point of view, being being selfish and uh, and things. But uh, this was my first FA Cup final, ah, okay. so I, I I just got to the point at school where I think I'd realised I'm probably going to have to start liking football. Otherwise, I'm just going to get beaten up more often in the playground. <laughs> but um, and I I will never forget that that me and my friend at school at the time, Paul Penman, had both sort of said, okay, we think that Spurs are going to win this FA Cup final. So. Uh, and I knew nothing about football at this point. It, it, I, I think I don't even think I'd started looking back at sort of games historically. I, I, I have a vague recollection of something going on in the 1987 League Cup final, um, but, uh, but, but, but nothing too much really. But this was the first proper football match that I was sitting down, and I was now a football fan, and this was it. I was, I was going in, and I thought Spurs were going to win. Incidentally, I don't recall being too gutted by the end of it when the eventual outcome sort of came about, but, but we were in this was this was the first uh, the first FA Cup final and what a way to start I mean it was, as far as I was as far as I was concerned if this is football can I have more of it please this is a this is a great thing so the game gets going and as you say, Spurs are playing this fluid 4-5-1, which I later go on to realise because I end up being a Luton Town fan that David Pleat had employed um, at Luton in, in the early 80s. And it was a rare thing, especially when you watch the style of Coventry playing on, on the day as well. You've got the old Wembley, and it is very much the old Wembley uh, back then. And it's uh, absolutely sort of full. And you can hear the noise in a way that you just, you just can't ha- hear nowadays. And you've got John Motson on the microphone not being disturbed as we touched on last week by a regular co-commentator though we did hear from Jimmy Hill once in a while which uh, actually wasn't too much of a, a hardship uh, as, it, as his points were often uh, often insightful and we're away and what happens in the first couple of minutes we get a Spurs goal Pete yeah that, um, they, they, they sort of uh, the phrase is knocking on the door for a couple of moves trying to get the ball forward Coventry defend and then it's Waddle on the uh, on, on the right looks to uh uh, faints to cross with his left, then turns round, takes it with his uh, right foot near post, says Alan. And it was, again, typical. It's his 49th goal of the season, uh, and it's one of those that you put it in that area, he's going to score. And right from the start, you're thinking, God, this could be uh, this could be dangerous. This could end up being sort of a, a cricket score. Um, because it just had that feel about it. They'd started well. Um, Coventry hadn't, you know, and, and um, it was uh, say, just a, a, a nipped in at the near post and... and it was a typical sort of poacher's goal. He had a nose for uh, for that sort of thing, and, and there was no stopping it. But um, yeah, it's cracking start. And then, sort of, about five minutes later, the tone for me at this point, watching it back, uh, was was being set even more. You had Gary Mabbott going in with a properly old school <laughs> tackle on on Cyril Regis. And if you're a centre back and you're marking a duo like Cyril Regis and Keith Houchin, both big men, and Gary Mabbott wasn't the biggest centre half in the world, I think you've you've got to be able to employ the 1980s ruling there that you can get at least two or three big tackles in on them before before the referees Neil Midgley's even going to look in your direction and and Mabbott most certainly left one in on, on Cyril Regis in that moment and that I think and I think the evidence goes on to be see woke Cyril Regis up quite dramatically and he thought okay I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you guys now that there's, uh, there's still a lot of class left in this in this tank I felt exactly the same and I thought that um Generally in the air, Regis and Houchin had the better of uh, Mabbott and Goff um, and generally caused them uh, um, problems. But, but, you know, it was almost like a sort of a, 
little basketball type thing, you know, Tottenham go down one and score, Coventry come back. And it was really fascinating, as you say, to watch it back now and see that, that Coventry did swarm all over them um, for, for the next sort of few minutes. And, and certainly weren't, you could tell then, they weren't overawed. They weren't suddenly, the heads didn't drop. Uh, and it's, it's that one thing, sometimes it seems an odd thing to say, but sometimes you can score too early in a game. And, and, uh, and then it gives the other team all that time to come back at them when they didn't have that target before. So we go we go into the ninth minute and it was really interesting watching this goal back because in the old days you didn't get long sort of action replays. You literally just got the assist in the goal. You didn't see the build-up or anything like that. And it was very interesting to actually watch uh, the minute or so preceding uh, Dave Bennett's equaliser. So um, Spurs basically got caught trying to overplay which I would imagine was a very typical thing for Tottenham that season because if your holding midfield player is Aussie Ardiles you're, you're, you're playing a certain style of football I think you've I think you've nailed your colours to the mask quite soon if Aussie's screening the back four uh, and if you remember how Aussie went into his managerial career there was no screening of the back four it was you're on you're on your own guys so Aussie gives the ball away and it leads to a free kick uh, given away by Mitchell Thomas at, at left back, sort of wide on wide on the uh, the Coventry right. And at this point, you're thinking, right, there's no there's no major dramas, but it was a silly mistake, a silly lack, a loss of possession, which led to a silly foul. And you're thinking, okay, okay. Now the free kick comes in, and the free kick's not a particularly great one, but Spurs had three or four clear opportunities just to leather it wherever it needed to go, just to clear their lines and regroup. Because as you said, Coventry is swarming them a little bit at the minute this minute. And they probably just need to, need to take a bit of the sting out of the game only momentarily but they just cannot get this ball clear and then it drops to Dave Bennett and he's, and he's equalised now it was, it, was, it was a funny goal because it didn't feel like it was 1-1 but it just it, it, the, the game would obviously then just become level, and you're like, well, okay, so Spurs are probably going to go on and win this. But well done, Coventry. Yeah, yeah I mean it was good. Good call. The Houching gets ahead of right the uh, sort of near post, and, and I've watched it a couple of times to try and see. I think on commentary. Motson blames Clements because he said, "Oh, he hesitated." I think Clements Hodge is coming in with Bennett, and I, which again is is odd because. Why is he marking Bennett? But um, and I think whether Clement thought he was going to get it, and then Clement sort of kept going. Bennett nipped in, and, and it was a, a good finish. But um, yeah, and then you say, then you think, oh, okay, well, this is you know game on, I, I suppose. But um, it, it seemed to settle down a bit after that, didn't it? There wasn't quite the sort of you again the basketball idea seemed to finish. Tottenham didn't go up the other end and sort of swarm all over Coventry. It seemed to sort of settle things, but. Well, there was one thing that actually a couple of minutes later that made me believe that Clements was at fault for the goal was because a couple of minutes later, a very simple cross comes yeah. in and he, and he fumbles it. And that, and that made me think, oh, OK, maybe he was at fault for that goal. Maybe that's still in his mind. Now, it could be that they're two completely unrelated incidents. But, but Clements at this point did not look like the Ray Clements that I've watched the week before in the 1977 European Cup final. I mean, I know we're talking like it's a decade later, but, but Clements was, was looking a little bit nervous, as will be Steve Grizovich, who will, will no doubt come on to in, in, in a moment. But... When when he fumbled that cross, I was thinking, okay, they're 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 nervous here, Tottenham. They're nervous. There's not the they're not assured. They're not confident. And then for that sort of, we're talking about ten to fifteen minutes into the game now. I felt Coventry had the momentum. 
I, I thought that uh, the Coventry were looking like the more settled team at this point. Spurs were great for the first three minutes, but from then onwards, it really did feel like that if anyone was going to score again soon, it was going to be Coventry. Yeah, I'm mean, thinking, and, and and that yes, again, sort of this this thing of um, any ball into the box, you you felt that Houchin and Regis were going to win the first uh, the first header, uh, and that became dangerous. And and I think you're probably right. I I, I don't were sort of Mabbott and Goff a little bit nervous perhaps they're assured sort of players have been around a bit by then but um, you wonder how much sort of Clements was, was uncertain with, with that and don't forget he's sort of getting on a little bit uh, now so um, it uh, it may have had um, an effect but um, I, I get, it, you wonder in sort of players' minds um, for Tottenham particularly, they, as you said, as we sort of talked earlier, at one point thought perhaps the trebles on, got knocked out of the League Cup um, semi-final. They'd not quite. They just. I mean, the season fell away for them in the uh, in, in the league. I don't know whether they'd ever sort of um, overhaul that Everton team. Um, and so um, you wonder if there's a little bit of a oh god, are we going to lose this as well? Um, that, that happens, and it only needs to happen with a few players who just slightly late with a challenge or something, or don't perhaps make the uh, the, the pass and, and Coventry had nothing to lose did they no no exactly exactly and that was all I, and one other thing I'd picked up in the first sort of 15-20 minutes was that it was only then that I, that I realised Jimmy Hill was co-commentator and we'd only heard from him two or three times but the, as I mentioned earlier the points that he made were really really insightful now Jimmy Hill probably was that he certainly went through a naff stage, Jimmy Hill? I think where he was a bit of a um, he was a bit of a sort of a, a figure of fun in the, in the football circles for a long time. But it just made me think, even in those sort of couple of minutes with the with the insightful comments, actually how much Jimmy Hill had done for football um, he, over the course of his life. And it was it was again great to sort of see him. Well, not great to see him go because I was a kid, but now you know that he went from player to PFA rep to to chairman to manager. A linesman, and now we sort of uh, he's a co-commentator on the FA Cup final as well. Is, is there nothing Jimmy Hill can do when it when it comes to football? Yeah, that's right. And he did all of them pretty well. Yeah, yeah I mean certainly, and, and and particularly sort of television uh, televised football. I mean he was um, you know instrumental in um, in a lot of that. If you sort of, you, I think today. You, you, if you if you listed out what he'd done for the game and things that got brought in through his sort of ideas, I think you would be surprised that one man did that without you know he wasn't a sir and he wasn't sort of you know he's, he's not um, it's not Wembley Stadium sort of named after him. Um, but yeah, as you say, you know he, he was a bit of a, a figure of fun and, and in a way you could argue that that was the strength of the man because he didn't let it uh, didn't let it bother him um, and he carried on, but. Um, no, not, not even a little yeah. bit. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite sort of quite nice in it. You know, I thought of you watching this again when 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 say when we heard Jimmy because I know we talked about that um, last week, and that's how I sort of remember cup finals in the in the eighties was the occasional um, comment, and um, and of course you know, I don't know he, you never get the impression he's sort of really emotional inside, but he must have been because um, you know he was Mister Coventry, you know, and and. Uh, uh, he'd made this sort of uh, club, if you like, what it uh, what it was, and, and it was quite happy to sort of sit back and let other people have their their moment, I guess. 
Indeed. And then we go on to Chris Waddle as well, who uh, Motson made a comment about, which again, I'd forgotten, but I sort of go, go back over time. I can understand why he made it. But Chris Waddle was uh, being, being play, playing at Wembley, where sometimes he's laughed at and booed at by the crowd when he's playing for, playing for England. Now, my memories of Chris Waddle as a footballer, I mean, I, hide, I hold this guy in like one of the best English players of all time sort of level for the sheer skill, flair, grace, ability. I speak to, I speak to mm. friends of mine in Marseille and they yeah. and they tell me about the Chris Waddle they know and what an absolutely unbelievable talent that he was when he was uh, when he was down there mind <laughs> you they get quite excited about Tony Cascarino as well so I I do wonder whether Marseille <laughs> fans are a particularly great judge of footballer but uh, um, but 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 Waddle even in this game you've got the you've got the languid Waddle style going on he's just drifting around but he's causing he's causing problems for 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 Coventry and and, and giving Greg Downs uh, who's got a marvelous yeah. at 1980 his footballer's haircut incidentally Greg Downs but uh, he was giving him quite quite a few problems in the game but it was just surprising to hear that in 1987 even then Waddle was being booed yeah. and people didn't want him in the England team who would they want in the England team ahead of Chris Waddle on the right of England's midfield yeah and I think um, yeah I mean he was a typical uh, winger as you say you know, he had that languid run and you'd look at it and think oh, that must be easy to get the ball off him and no one could um, and he, he just had but he was one of those players that would drift in and out of games and probably certainly in the sort of you know 70s he, he we'd put up with players like that and you'd pay money just to go and watch one bit of skill that you could sort of talk about for the rest of the week but I think by the sort of 80s people were getting a little bit um, board. I mean, John Barnes suffered the same same thing with, with England, you know, and, and he'd play for his club and be fantastic. And then because he only got perhaps a few chances uh, of touching the ball for, for in, at international level, then he um, it didn't look quite so uh, so good. But yeah, no, again, if you think about on paper a, a team involving sort of Hoddle and, and Waddle, well, how could they how could they not sort of win everything? And and it, I thought Waddle had quite a good first half. He he, he tended to shoot more than um, perhaps he should have done. Most of it was from outside the area, and and oh, that was dangerous. But I, I did find one bit interesting where he turns up on the left wing, um, and Downs is still following him, and the ball then makes its way. I think go back to Clements. He rolls it out to um, um, to the right hand side, and, and 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 of course it was a bit open there. And I thought that was an unusual. I didn't wasn't expecting that to be happening back in the 80s. I thought players still generally, attacking players would move around, but I thought defensive players tended to sort of stick where they were told to go. Yeah, there was a, there was actually a lot of movement on the pitch, wasn't there? There was a lot of movement on the pitch. There, there was times where Steve Hodge would pop up on the right of midfield. Mm, and yeah. there, there was times where Paul Allen, I mean, I didn't actually really realise where Paul Allen was playing for most of the first half because he just kept finding these these random spaces and, and everything. Coventry were a lot more drilled and they were playing a rigid four-four-two. I mean, I think I think we can agree on that. We didn't see Nick Pickering sort of uh, disappearing from that left touch line too often, and Dave Bennett was typically wide on the right. But uh, but Spurs were being quite creative in in their in their movement for sure. And then suddenly, pretty much, I mean, Coventry had a lot of the game, but out of nowhere, Cyril Regis had what I felt was a perfectly good goal disallowed. And it was it was called by Midgley for a, for a nudge uh, by Keith Houchin. But at yeah. this point, Coventry had their tails up, something chronic. Yeah, I mean, if, again, that's that's quite ironic. Having watched the World Cup, and it was the um, was that the Brazil goal against Switzerland, where clearly the players pushed.
push the defender, but you think, well, that happens. Um, and this didn't seem to be anywhere near as hard as, uh, as that. Yes, you can see a bit of a nudge, but um, you know, they've still got a chance to, uh, to, to defend. And, and, and again, it was that sort of feeling that, well, OK, they had a goal to sell out, but there'll be another one along in a minute. There'll be another chance. And, and you did sort of feel that they're, they're, they're a bit, bit shaky at this stage, uh, Tottenham. No, they they were very much on the ropes, and and but then then again momentum just just shifted like like the basketball game like like you're talking about. Steve Grizovic, unbeknown to anyone, why decided that he was going to go peak Bruce Grobler? It must be something that Oggy picked up from Bruce when he was at Liverpool as a kid, and and decided just to go on a crazy run outside of his area, which in many other instances would have led to, to Tottenham getting getting the lead back yeah yeah and Trevor Peake makes a couple of saves uh, or certainly blocks one uh, one shot and I think Alan then hits the uh, the side netting but yeah it was was unusual Global I was really about the only um, keeper that did that then you didn't have sort of sweeper keepers as you uh, do now and, and they tended to be shot stoppers and stay within their area and um, I, I don't really know why why he did it but um, he had a good game with Grizzabich and I always like that sort of the, the, the again the sort of sym- symmetry or synergy between um, uh, Grizzabich was Clemens's understudy at Liverpool he'd played three he'd gone to Wembley three times never got, actually got a game because he was on the bench um, and um, he played in various sort of finals, Grzovic, but but only as a as a sort of as a unused sub. But um, so that was sort of funny in in a in a strange sort of way. But how many he was he was a rock at, at uh, for Coventry for years, and um, um, yeah, it seemed quite out of character. And, and again, there's a suddenly, as you say, suddenly sort of reminder that um, oh, well, there, there are two sides here, and there is a game going on, and, and Coventry can't get too carried away. No, definitely, and the and. But then that, I say, that that got Tottenham sort of spirits up, and and they started to dominate this next passage of play. But in true Tottenham style with this team, it was actually Coventry who had then the the next best chance, and that was forcing. Uh, I think it was Mickey Gin, and he forced uh, forced Ray Clements into another very good one v one save, uh, the sort of save that we actually saw again referring to last week in the nineteen seventy seven European Cup final game that we that we did. So that was a really really crucial crucial save by by Clements, and. Then both teams, rather than looking to see out, see it out until half time, just went even more attacking. At one one point, I counted within five minutes. I seen both Richard Goff and Gary Mabbott on overlapping runs from centre back, both breaking into the into the opponent's sort of penalty area. And you again, you don't see that that often nowadays. And you certainly, I mean, I know David Pleat had um, he wanted his teams to play football, but but this was very much an attacking Tottenham sort of hell for leather uh, sort of style and both managers had said before the game they wanted to make it open they wanted to make it a spectacle they they wanted to entertain but you had Richard Goff who wasn't the most ball playing centre back of his generation sprinting through looking to get on the end of a, of a 40 yard 1-2 which I think he was playing with Hoddle it was it was great to see <laughs> Yeah, and of course, Mabbott uh, could play in midfield as well, couldn't he? So he he sort of had that understanding of um, of being able to play around the different parts of the pitch. But uh, yeah, it, it, as you say, added to that excitement. And and in a way, it was a shame that half time uh, came, but it gave you a chance to sort of catch your breath a bit. And just before half time, now you mentioned you mentioned a few moments ago that you felt Steve Grzovic had had a good game. I'm I'm challenging you on 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 that statement because <laughs> I felt he looked really nervous for the uh, for the first twenty minutes, and I think that's 
understandable when you've now just said, well, he's, he's had three finals on a bench. He's never actually got onto the pitch at Wembley and this is his chance to actually play. I felt he was quite nervous for the 20, first 20. Then you see the, the crazy dribble and then you can't tell me he's not a fool for the goal right on the stroke of half time. No, I think that uh, yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, it 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 was one of those that um, again, look, you'd look at now and rip a keeper apart for, uh, for for that because he he sort of begins to come for the cross, hesitates, um, and uh, I, I'm still convinced it's a it's a Brian Kilcline own goal. I must admit, um, I haven't sort of checked recently whether um, whether it was uh, credited to, to Mavitt. I thought it was at the time, but. Um, yeah, I, I still looking back now. I still think it hits Kill Klein because I think that's the sort of direction his, his foot's going. But um, yeah, and 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 again, if the keeper hadn't sort of either need to come properly and 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 get it, or don't come at all, and and if he hadn't come, then you'd say, well, he's there to save the. Uh, the ball when eventually comes in. Yeah, definitely. I, for some reason, I've spent 20, uh, 31 years thinking that Brian Kilcline scored at both ends in this FA Cup final. So I definitely so I definitely thought that Kilcline got the own goal. But then I think it turns out that I've got my two bits of history slightly mixed. And it's Gary Mabbott who's officially credited with, with scoring at both ends in, uh, in, this, in this FA Cup final. So again, it's funny what, what time does to you. But Brian Kilcline, what a character he was, not just for this Coventry final, but get, moving on then to, uh, to New Newcastle and then to to Swindon as well. I'm sure there were various stops for him in between because he he did move around a little, a little bit, did Brian. But an absolute 1980s legend of a footballer, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was that sort of uh, comment you had about players, uh, defenders, that they were stoppers, um, certain centre-backs who were tended to be sort of fairly tall, little bit uh, immobile, if you like. I mean, six foot four for a, uh, it must have been something like around six foot four, is, is fairly standard for a Premier League footballer these days. Um, but um, once you get to sort of in the 80s, he wasn't necessarily the man. Was it, his nickname was Killer, wasn't it? Um, something like that. But he was, you know, he, I mean, it was... I'd, I'd forgotten the Swindon uh, thing, but, but certainly sort of I first saw him when he was at um, Notts County when they uh, came up to the first division. And, and uh, he was one of those, again, that the clubs love to see because he will always sort of try his best. He was a tough tackler, um, not necessarily the most gifted sort of on the ball, uh, but that's what that wasn't what he was paid to do. Um, and plenty of clubs had players like uh, like that, and they were they were certainly worth it to, to them. But um, yeah, it, 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 and he, he has an interesting sort of part to play in something a bit uh, a bit later on, which um, didn't quite end so well for him. But uh, yeah, well, I'll give, I'll give you I'll give you a bonus five Ronnie Dog biscuits if you can tell me what, what Brian Kilkline's doing with his life now. Um, well, I'd, I'd hope he's uh, he sat on some beach in Marbella, sort of uh, smoking some fairly large cigars and um, and sort of laughing at, uh, at people looking back thirty odd years at, uh, at what he used to be like. Um, but I, you're going to tell me something completely different, I suspect. Not not a million not a million miles out. He's uh, I, I I can't remember if he's actually in Spain or Portugal, but he he has a few sort of properties which he then rents out. Um, but he does it through something like Airbnb or something where he's actually incredibly accessible. So now I'm thinking about it, we should have probably tried to get Brian on this podcast today, uh, but probably through the ruse, probably through the ruse of trying to book one of his properties. But, uh, oh, but yeah. let's hope, let's hope his marketing is uh, come and rent a property from a killer. That, that has to be surely. It's got to be. 
It's got to be. Yeah. It's got to be. Anyway, we, we digress slightly because there was still time for Coventry to go close through Nick Pickering before the halftime whistle blew. And it, it took a really good block by, by Richard Goff to mean, that, to mean that Tottenham did go in uh, 2-1 up. So if you're Tottenham and you're going in 2-1 up at halftime, you've got to be thinking, finally, we're actually, we're actually going to get something out of this season. Yeah, I, I probably, I think I made a note that I'd have said they probably deserved it, uh, Tottenham. On the balance of play, uh, although, as, as you say, sort of in the, the uh, even after the Coventry equaliser, they were a little shaky. I thought sort of towards the end of the half, they, they seemed to be a little bit more in, in control. You felt there was more to come from Waddle. Um, he'd had plenty of shots, as I say. Um, you hadn't seen much from Hoddle, but again, it was that sort of feeling that, well, you're bound to the second half. Um, and and I also thought that perhaps the man advantage in midfield would start to uh, would start to count. And you know, you sort of expect a side they were probably paid, certainly paid more. I would have thought than commentary, and and so you'd expect players of that ability, more internationals that. Let's settle down at half time. Let's get our heads around this, and and uh, and we'll come out the second half and really put them away because because um, we had them uh, at one point. But if you're Coventry, you probably look and say, well, okay, we're probably a bit unlucky to be two one down. Really, we're given as good as we got. We had a decent goal disallowed. You know, these these are here for the taking, and it's Tottenham. It's you know they 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 were at that sort of stage a little vulnerable if you got at them. Um, you know, sort of start knocking them down a bit and, and, and then they're only going to come back uh, a few times. So there was always that feeling. You felt that, that Tottenham would have needed uh, at least one more goal before uh, killing uh, Coventry off. And um, obviously it, uh, it was much different. Indeed. So the, the second half got underway. And to be honest, the, the game wasn't as good as it was in the first half quite quite frankly there wasn't there wasn't as much that much action there wasn't much going on but then it was became a different type of game i just felt that coventry could get something here Tottenham seemed to have almost just gone. All right, guys. Well, they haven't scored in the in that dreaded sort of ten minutes after a, after after the second half begins. It's ours now. It's ours to lose. And boy, did they go on. Boy, did they go on to lose it. And you, we are fortunate enough in this game to have possibly the most iconic FA Cup final goal, certainly of the 1980s. Though Ricky Villa fans are going to shoot me for for suggesting that. Um, maybe for me personally of all FA Cup goals I just love this goal and the reason I love this goal was because there was a great photo of it in one of the football annuals I got at Christmas probably for Christmas 1987 I'd imagine because they wouldn't bother putting it into the 1988 one I'm sure so it was so that goal is always always in my mind and the build up to the goal again was so beautiful in its simplicity Grizovic just for a change has launched a big punt up the middle great centre forward play by Cyril Regis winning winning the header I think it was off Mabbock because he seemed to be going to Mabbock more than he was going to to golf over the course of the game the ball goes wide and a great cross comes in uh, from Dave Bennett which Keith Houchin Keith Houchin isn't even even in screenshots, when, the, when you see the the bend on the ball coming in from Dave Bennett, Houchin just launches himself at it, and it's a wonderful diving header that goes past Ray Clemens. Yeah, I think you've uh, you've put it perfectly there. It was um, a, a voted goal of the season, I think, um, for that uh, for that season, and, and 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 probably because of the excitement of Houchin, as you say, when the build-up is coming, he's not in the area, um, and he runs from you know reasonably deep, I suppose, doesn't check his stride, straight on the ball, and, um, and I mean, I, I thought Bennett. 
as the game went on, came more and more into the game and was more and more of a, of a nuisance. Um, and certainly Coventry seemed to get more joy down Tottenham's left. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it was... But like I said, when you look at Houchins or look at the cut run that... Uh, that they'd uh, that they'd had. I mean, Houchin just kept scoring uh, goals. Um, got two against Sheffield Wednesday. Scored the goal at Old Trafford. He got one in the uh, in the semi final. Um, and it just seemed to be from a, again a story. You know, you quite often had, um, especially with Motson was commentating. You you had stories of, of of FA Cup games in you and and he of oh, some finals. And he was that story, wasn't he? Came from you know low, lower sort of leagues, if you like. Um, and and there he is on the big stage. Age, and it was a it was a, it was a great uh, great goal. No, and I, what I loved about it as well was the cross from Dave Bennett because that was the ultimate. Just put it in an area, lad. Don't worry about what's right. Just put it in an area, and he did. And then and then it's up to the strikers then to to make them make the most of it, and they certainly did. Now that suddenly turned Keith Houch into Marco Van Basten for about fifteen minutes because from that moment he was the finest player in England for, for until until it suddenly fizzled out again about fifteen minutes later. And if Johan Cruyff had been at Wembley checking out Cyril Regis at there, I would be surprised if he hadn't been popping over to the Coventry's director box to, to write a check for for Keith Houchin because he was suddenly on fire it was it was just just absolutely uh absolutely brilliant sort of a center forward play for uh for 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 a bit of time and again then the um the game just fizzles again yeah i mean there was because he he didn't have a header that the clements sort of saved quite sort of right down by his post which is quite a sharp sort of uh chance but he didn't take that cleanly either right oh. clements i want to point out <laughs> and, uh, and as you say you know it suddenly seemed to be look just get the ball in the area and houching all uh, all get there but um yeah and then you sort of almost as if teams both teams sort of seem to settle a, a, a bit and, and whether they're getting tired i don't know but um say so you weren't really seeing waddle he he wasn't you hardly saw much of him in the second half whereas first half he seemed to be um, in, in, in involved in everything, um, and again, that's where you looked at their their midfield and said, "Well, they're, they're, they're a bit weak here." You know, you suddenly realise Hoddle hadn't turned up anywhere, and where's Hodge? And and um, didn't really know what our dealers were doing, and, and they just looked as if they needed, as you mentioned a bit earlier, somebody who could put the foot on the ball and slow it down and say, "Right, come on, let's get in charge of this." And and but no, they didn't. And you look at the, the energy that was still left in the, the middle of the Coventry midfield with Mickey Jinn and Lloyd McGrath. They just didn't stop running. And these were two fit, fit lads. Mickey Jinn was a much better footballer than I think people sort of remember. And he was very good at breaking into the area from deep. And I think he did it on two or three occasions and, and certainly went close when Clements made the great one-on-one save. He went close where the ball just got away from him and he couldn't quite get on the end of something. And I, and I believe there was another one where I think he actually started to go round Ray Clements that might have been an extra time and uh, and the, the, the angle got too narrow for him to get a convincing sort of shot away but Mickey Jinn was was running that midfield by this point ably backed up by by Lord Lloyd McGrath but then in true Tottenham style yet again there's only minutes left and they've got an absolutely brilliant chance to, to, to lift the trophy and Steve Grizovich gets an opportunity to make up for his previous error yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 was, that was again uh, Clive Allen, wasn't it? I mean, he had a couple of. Uh, I remember a 
pirouette and a, and a sort of a sharp chance sort of a bit earlier on. Uh, there was always, he always seemed to have a sort of quite powerful shot. But um, and, and, and that was, again, one of those things that you think you haven't been work giving him enough chances in this second half. And, and, and you're right with Mickey Jenny. He suddenly seemed as if he, you almost wouldn't be surprised if, if, he, um, if he'd only just come on the pitch after about 60 minutes. And, and I think looking back, he must have spent the first half and sort of the early part of the second half just sort of watching the, the midfield and watching the, the, their players and realising that they didn't really have much and seemed to be released after that. And he was now sort of the, 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 the almost most dangerous player in, in attack. But um, yeah, and again, again, it was that thing where, Alan, you give him one chance, he probably would put it away. And and, uh, and it was a sharp save by uh, Grizovic because we were sort of coming towards... Um, the end of the ninety minutes, and um, and that was was that just because Kilfine had a um, it was a fairly um, fairly heavy challenge with with Mabbott, um, and then but he injured himself, I think. So um, um, so that sort of changed things a little bit, and you felt sorry for the guy because he's you know it was his again one of those players that must have wondered if he was ever going to get a cup final. But um, so yeah, so then, then but you're still reminded that Tottenham could could do something at, at, at some point and, and really they needed to have uh, nailed that because um, their, their chances were, were, were going. And I'd completely forgotten it had gone to extra time. I mean, I, I knew the result. Uh, I, I remember that, that obviously the, the Coventry went on to win this thing, but I had completely forgotten that it had gone to extra time. So that was a little treat for me in some ways when, when I was watching this, watching this game back. And uh, apparently it was the fifth time in the previous seven finals that the uh, that the FA Cup final had gone to extra time, and the third time in a row that Tottenham had gone to gone to extra time as well. And I was racking my brains trying to remember if Tottenham had won any of the e- extra times because most of the the previous two, certainly one of them, went to a replay, didn't it? Yeah, both of them went to replays. The Man City game uh, and QPR, um, and so no, Tottenham hadn't then won the uh, either one in uh, in extra time, and of course you had the. Um, 80, uh, 83, the Brighton uh, Man United game that went to extra, sorry, replay. Um, so yes, you um, it, it, um, it, 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 it was the other thing we haven't mentioned about Tottenham, of course, is their pedigree in cup finals. Their seventh uh, seventh appearance in the cup final, they'd won every uh, every one up to then. Um, so you know, cup finals they were they were the FA Cup team, if you like. Now I do remember Spurs being known as a, as, a, as the cup side, and there was also this weird thing around the year ending in one or something that they always used to bang on about as well. But uh, but uh, but yeah, I do I do remember Tottenham being a being a cup side, which is probably in my in my infant football sort of uh, predictions why I went for them in the first place. I'm sure I did enough research to to understand at the age of eight or nine or whatever I was that that you go for the team that hasn't ever lost an FA Cup final, and uh, my football my football prediction skills started as it clearly meant to go on because uh, I, I got that one completely wrong. So we're in we're in extra time. Lloyd McGrath with that extra bit of energy that he's got that is clear now that the Spurs midfield don't have, gallops down the right, puts in a very average looking cross and it loops up and over uh, Ray Clemens off the boot of Gary Mabber. At that point, did we think Tottenham were done? I think so. I think you sort of got that feeling that, um, again, talking about the confidence thing of, of of thinking they were sort of going to run away with this early in the game, Coventry came back, they're back in front before half-time, and you still sort of had that feeling that, yeah, Coventry aren't dead here. Um, they, they missed that chance right at the end of the 90 minutes, um, and then you just sort of felt they were 2-1 up, they're now 3-2 down, 
it's come off Mabbott, so either it's his boot or his knee or something. Uh, and it just, again, you start to think, this is not going to be their day, is it? Um, and Coventry were, were cock a hoop, really. And, and uh, I don't know what happened. I mean, Pleat made. I did he make a couple of substitutions, and they just their whole sort of shape seemed to seem to go, even though they would they were they hadn't got Coventry in as much uh, uh, under control as much as they had perhaps um, at certain parts of the game, uh, and really you just sort of felt that okay, well this is the first half of of extra time, so um, there's quite still a reasonable way to go. Players will get tired. You know, you, you you're expecting the usual sort of cup final bloke on his back and some person's pushing his foot. Uh, 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 to try and stop the cramp, um, but but it, it it almost again in a way sort of fizzled because that seemed to be the end of Tottenham really and and uh, um, Coventry I mean they, they they I think they had another couple of chances and, and certainly um, they probably could have gone on and they just looked as if they could carry on running and it was that interesting thing where you see two teams. Um, playing together, and and you've got that whole dynamic of of the if the energy with one team rather than another, um, and you couldn't see how Tottenham were uh, were going to come back into it. And too many big players, if you like, had, had seemed to be uh, asleep. No, it was it was it, it, it just fizzled out for Spurs as as, as you said, and uh, their shape did go when they, they threw Nico Clayson on uh, the I think it was Belgian uh, striker and. Uh, and it was um, it was in, in, important for him to sort of to try to try and obviously find find the equalising goal, but it, it never realistically looked like uh, coming. And neither should it at that point with Coventry sort of having fought back so many times and being the underdogs massively for this for this cup final. It was uh, it was uh, probably the the right result and and basically on reflection of the game itself, it was the right result. They had the legs in extra time that Tottenham didn't, and. Uh, yeah, there was a certain sort of freedom about Coventry, wasn't there, that you never really got from Tottenham looking back. You you always sort of felt that they were striving for something and they never quite uh, found it. Whereas Coventry, because if you think about back to, let's say Tottenham did equalise in, in, even in the second half of extra time, you still felt Coventry would come back at them. Um, whereas at this point you felt that Tottenham were going to struggle to come back at, uh, at Coventry, so yeah, they, they just as I say seem to have that sort of almost youthful sort of naivety in a way of um, of just suddenly enjoying, or not suddenly, but gradually enjoying the uh, the occasion, um, and. Um, and then it was it was for a neutral. It was uh, it was fantastic to uh, to see. I think Motson calls it his, his the best cup final he'd ever seen. I mean, obviously you know until two thousand six, and um, and uh, well actually until the next uh, the next two two years time. But um, so so in terms of sort of drama and it seemed to have everything I think you sort of even watching it now when you know what the result is there was still because you do get a bit engaged in, in, in games if you, even if you watch them sort of the second time or third time back I still felt a little bit god that's quite a good game wasn't it you know you still felt that you were you were putting something into it and slightly sort of your heart rate was going just just watching it hmm no, definitely. I just say for me personally, what a what a great FA Cup final to start my uh, my love of football football with. It was uh, it was it was only going to going to get worse from there. Some would say, but but actually it didn't over the back end of the eighties. And I'm sure there's a few more nineteen eighties games that we're going to cover. Um, that follow this one over over the next few weeks. So then, in, in terms of the future for for both teams, sort of very quickly. I mean, that that Tottenham team ended up breaking up. I mean, David Pleat left uh, left Tottenham for, for for whatever reason, shall we say? 
Um, and, uh, <laughs> oh, I thought he was fairly well Yeah, known, exactly. Okay. Uh, I, I still like David. I think he's. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to drag his name through the uh, through the mud on our, on, our, on our little podcast. But uh, it was a shame that he that he lost the Tottenham job for for reasons off the pitch. But that team then, as a result, did start to break up. Waddle goes to Marseille. Clive Clive Allen goes to France as well. I think he does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to say Bordeaux, but that could be completely wrong. Um, no, I think you're probably right there, yeah. And uh, and obviously Hoddle that is then off to, to Monaco. I think Ozzy Ardiles gets loaned out to Blackburn, but his Tottenham days are, are over. Gary Mabbitt stays. Richard Goff heads off to Rangers. Ray Clements, Ray Clements has to retire, I think, just off the back of his FA Cup final performance. And uh, and and the top, that Tottenham team that was it was an all right Tottenham team. It wasn't a great Tottenham team. Starts to disband and and it's up to Terry Venables then to to try and rebuild rebuild a team in the shape of Paul Gascoigne for Coventry though for Coventry being such a mainstay of the first division at, at the time for and go on to be for for many years still it was a, it was a moment that uh, they certainly came crashing back down to earth with a bump uh, on uh, not not too not too many years after yeah I mean the the the, the thing that's a little bit of a shame for 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 a club like uh, Coventry to, to win their only, you know, the only time they've ever sort of won anything. Of course, they couldn't go on into Europe because English clubs were banned. Um, and a little bit, a uh, little bit of interesting snippet I found in some of the research I was doing was that they did organise because Samiran won the Scottish Cup that year. So again, you had sort of two in England and Scotland, two sort of un, un, unfashionable, if you like, perhaps teams winning the cups. Um, they they, they organised a, a, a effectively a Super Cup between uh, between them, and they played first leg at Highford Road and. 5,000 people turned up um, so the second leg second leg was then postponed and then nobody had any interest in, in organising it again so that uh, that went by the wayside um, and another little thing I picked up from, from, from a chat this is from a Facebook group um, uh, was that there was a, a, a um, on their semi-final against uh, Leeds, um, there was a chap who posted to say he was he was, he was in Australia. He was a Leeds. Uh, it was a few of them were Leeds fans there, and of course those are the days where you didn't have internet and you didn't have sort of live sort of coverage, perhaps of, of the score. So he said they just kept phoning random Leeds numbers just to try and see if somebody was following the game. Eventually, about the third or fourth call, they got hold of this bloke, and he said he was you know one-one or something at the time. Then they phoned back at full time, and the bloke told them that uh, Leeds had lost. Coventry were through to the final, and so yeah, weird. You know, you just hear these sort of stories that these days you 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 can get hold of almost any game at any time and see what what's happening. But um, you'd almost sort of think um, perhaps '87 isn't that uh, long ago. But um, yeah, that's um, and of course, as you say, you know, the, was it two years later they got knocked out by Sutton in the uh, in the cup. Um, and uh, and they suddenly realised what it was like to be uh, shot at, really, I suppose. Um, and then, you know, come 2001, they eventually lost first division status and just kept dropping down to the fourth tier. I mean, that was the thing I thought interesting when they went up this, uh, this year. That was their first ever promotion since they got promoted to the first division in 67. Um, just incredible, really, which... Um, uh, yeah, and it's an interesting story on its own, the same as Luton is, you know, in this whole sort of... David Pleat thing and and uh, and Wimbledon as well. I suppose the whole sort of story of how a club goes through and and gets into the top division and stays there. That that was the the classic thing. Um, they didn't just weren't just up and down, up and down. Um, in, incredible, really. No, definitely. So I think one thing that's going to become the theme of this uh, of, of these retro matches uh, is the ideas that spark through the uh, through the actual uh, the, the, through the actual podcast. So today I've scribbled down that we must do something about something to do with Jimmy Hill or one of the 
it was one of his famous matches. I really want us at some point to go over David Pleat at uh, a main road. I think it was 1981 when Luton avoided relegation on the uh, on the last day of the season. There was the famous David Pleat jig. Uh, Sutton United beating Coventry City is a game that we have to do at some point. So there's a, there's at least three that have uh, three other games that we can go off and do at some point that have come out of, of today's podcast. But guys, that is a. Uh, that is it for today's retro match. That was the 1987 FA Cup final where Coventry shocked everyone by beating Tottenham Hotspur 3-2 in extra time. We will be back next week and we are going to be covering the 1988 Littlewoods Cup final where Luton Town played Arsenal. So we're looking forward to that one. Pete, thanks ever so much for today. Yeah, thank you. That was good. And we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to a Ronnie Dog Media podcast. This was a retro match hosted by Chris Darwin and Pete Spencer. You can find Chris Darwin on Twitter at Chris Darwin RDM, and you can find Pete on Twitter at IrishPete67. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jack Critton, and music is by the excellent Ryan Anderson.